Hello, uh, I'm delighted today to be joined by Simon Elmer, um, an author and a uh, campaigner and um, a, a man who has had a very, uh, I, I suspect, sizable intellectual journey uh, from his origins in the study of art history to campaigning about the return to fascism, uh, the biomedical security state, and the loss of our liberty and um, erosion of the, the core of our society. This is very heavy subjects to be, to be writing about, and one's based on his research. Uh, Simon, uh, welcome. I, I'd like to start um, just very briefly, if you could give a little outline of, of your starting point, you know, your initial studies and how you, um, how, you, how you started your professional life, just to put in context the journey we're about to, uh, to outline. Hello, David. Thank you for having me on UK Column. Well, I, I started, I trained as an art historian. Did my PhD at University College London, which I completed in around about 2000. Um, and yeah, I, people sometimes find it like, why is an art historian writing about what I'm, now, I'm doing now? But for myself, I don't find that such a, such a strange thing. Um, I taught for many years in art history, and the period I taught in was the period in Europe and the US between the two world wars, so the 20s and 30s. Um, <clears throat> so the historical background to the, the history of art, the theory of art that I was teaching was period of the rise of, of rise of fascism in Europe. Um, and that's been particularly uh, useful <clears throat> in, in, in the book I've written, The Road to Fascism. Um, after a number of years, I, I got out of academia. I'm very glad I did, um, seeing what's happened to it now. Um, because I certainly wouldn't have had the independence that I've got now as an independent researcher that I would have had if I was still in academia. My, my partner, Geraldine Denning, <clears throat> is still in academia. And I know a lot of academics, and the sort of pressures they're under um, of compliance and self-censorship is, is extraordinary. Um, in 2015, um, I co-founded uh, my current company, which is called Architects for Social Housing. Um, we're an architectural practice, um, but I myself am not an architect. Even though I studied the history of architecture. Um, I'm the head of research for that. And you might ask, why does an architectural practice need a head of research? Um, we formed to try and try, successfully tried to propose alternatives to existing housing policy, um, particularly in the UK, um, which is a policy of marketizing housing and financializing the housing market. And this goes across all the um, all the all the parties in power. Um, that is a government level, at municipal level, and also at um, local authority level. Um, and when we we were specifically formed to propose design alternatives, architectural design alternatives, to the estate council estate council housing estate demolition program, which is a nationwide program, but it's particularly focused on London council estates because London land is worth so much. <clears throat> so the point of it is to demolish council estates and build the highest value marketing market property you can on top of it 
So when I got into this, I realized that my research skills um, uh, and writing skills, so both analysis and then producing documents, uh, could be used, could be very useful in proposing alternatives and exposing um, the origins, if you like, of the housing crisis, which even though it's, nobody really talks about it anymore, it really dominated the politics in this country in the 2010s. Well, back in the, uh, what would it be now, 80s, uh, my, my, my older brother, who's quite a bit older than me, he was a property developer. Yeah. Um, industrial property had been his background. Uh, but he got interested in the housing crisis at this time. Mm. Um, and he made a proposal to the Scottish government, well, it wasn't the Scottish government, the Scottish office um, at that point, and local authorities. Um, whereby he was proposing essentially a, a very large investment which he'd secured from the City of London into social housing in Scotland um, on a commercial basis. Uh, the total uh, number of houses which could be constructed was essentially unlimited, it was in, enough to eliminate the housing crisis in Scotland. Yeah. And the total central government or local government um, uh, subsidy required was zero pounds and zero pence. And uh, this was a very strange experience for him because I don't think he'd ever been called so many names. Uh, he got essentially nowhere with it. Um, no houses were built and he met nothing but opposition to what he thought was um, a very positive proposal to actually provide people with homes. He thought that's what it was about. But uh, your work in this field is showing that it's, there's, there's many other things happening. Before we go into COVID and all related matters, it'd be, it'd be good to explore this a little bit further. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've seen many uh, strange things happening in the housing sector. The, the artificial constraint of the supply of land being one. And, and of course, the monetary side of things, whereby um, if, you, if, you, if you plot the value of, say, the average house in London against, against sterling, the, 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 the chart goes um, uh, exponential, close to it. It, it. it shoots massively up. If you plot it against gold, it's flat, nearly so. So one of the issues is the huge devaluation of money and the impoverishment of people as a result. And of course, the, the entire policy of essentially free money, zero interest rate policy, not anymore, but until very recently, zero interest rate policy, which simply drove asset prices to the moon. And it made uh, housing a thing of speculation um, and not an essential part of 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 the the necessities of life. Um, so, with all of this, as I would see it, government interference in in how we should contract with one another to provide for the things we need, we have a situation where housing gets ever more expensive. It should be the reverse. Uh, we should see. Um, construction innovations of plenty, um, prefabrication, off-site fabrication, 
driving down the cost, and there's almost none of that visible. Um, and uh, the requirement on is, is if someone wants, if they can even get the debt to buy a house, they are faced with having a huge speculation, um, basically putting all of their net worth into speculating on the housing market, which is a horrendous thing to do. And if that speculation goes wrong, you're into negative equity. People are stuck in, in places. They're unable to move. Their lives become, in many ways, wrecked by the asset they've bought. It's a bizarre system. And uh, I can well understand why you would need to be researching to, to drive forward any sort of idea of a solution. Um, could, you, could you expand on some of the lines your research uh, uncovered? <laughs> well, well what, what you've just said is a, is a, is a very good description of you know, very fundamental aspects of, of, house, of the housing market in the UK and across the world, um, particularly in the UK. Um, and in a way, you've, ans you've answered your own question of how this has led me into talking about what is going on now. Um, there's very similar levels of, um, <clears throat> of, I don't know if you want to call it corruption. It's a, I don't really like the word corruption because it's not a system which is being corrupted. It's a system that's working perfectly. Um, huge, a huge amount of, the, of UK wealth is, is contained in its housing. Um, and as you said, going back to the 80s, the policies that have created that have gone back decades. Um, and obviously, that brief period we had in the post-war, well, it kind of expanded enormously in the post-war period where you had a, a kind of a, a council housing program um, which built lots of houses and took housing out of the private market. It's something we've spent the, the decades since trying to reverse and very, very successfully. Um, as I said, when we got into it, our primary concern was something that um, architects could actually um, challenge, and that was the council estate demolition program. Um, the erasure of, the, of uh, council or, and or social housing, so both council housing and housing association properties um, in this country, is also about their selling them off, putting them onto the market. But in London, the primary loss, well, it, there's, there's two, there's also the, the right to buy. Um, Margaret Thatcher's policy of the right to buy, which has put, the last time I looked, something like three million houses into the private market out of the, you know, the public system. Um, but in London, there, was a, there, there has been since, I think, Tony Blair in about 1997. It's called the Council Housing Estate Regeneration Program. The idea is that you go in and you make estates better. You regenerate them, bring them up to kind of local housing standards and so on and so forth. But in London and increasingly across the UK, that is simply a demolition program. Of all the economic conditions that you describe, um, it is actually impossible to um, demolish a council estate, say a thousand or two thousand homes, um, compensate the leaseholders even as poorly as they are, um, rehouse the existing tenants elsewhere, and then build any form of social housing, council housing, or housing place. It's simply not financially possible. Um, <clears throat> and to answer your question about where we went on, we have written reports, numerous reports, which look at the economics of estate regeneration. Um, and there's a lot of people sort of saying, well, 
you know, it's because of corruption at local council level, blah, 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 or insufficient subsidies from governments and so on. But the real cause is the costs of demolition, the costs of compensation, the costs of rehousing, and the costs of redevelopment are so high that the only thing that can be built in its place is the highest market value properties possible in London. And since London has so many council estates built right in the center of the city, um, that land is enormously uh, valuable, and you can build um, very valuable properties in, in its place. I mean, one of the most famous examples is the Haygate estate, which I live just around the corner from, which is in central London. It's in uh, the Elephant and Castle area. Um, and it was one of, the, one of the earliest, and because it was so large, um, council estates, as, which was demolished as part of this program. And I think of the sort of roughly two, two and a half thousand people who lived on that estate, I think 98 families got rehoused on the new development. Um, the properties there, last time I looked, a two-bedroom property there is going for something like seven, three quarters of a million quid, uh, which is out of the reach not only of former council or former um, uh, leaseholders who lived on that council estate, um, but of a lot of other people as well. And in fact, most of that, if not all of those, the new, newly developed properties, which are still being built now, were marketed in Southeast Asia. And we've had this kind of huge, very wealthy community move in here. And they've got no idea that their homes, their lovely new homes, their very, very expensive new homes, um, you know, round about the million mark, have been built on the ruins of a demolished council estate. Um, so we did a lot of research into trying to understand this market. And particularly, we wanted to expose the fact that whether you were in Croydon and you had a Liberal Democrat council, which was in, in power, or you went out to Westminster and you had a Conservative council in power, or as in most of the councils in London, a Labour council, it didn't make any difference. All three parties who were in power were all pushing state demolition programs. And strangely enough, all the oppositions in those councils were opposed to it. Um, so it had become a kind of, um, it has become a a political program in the sense that um, it's, it's a radically political program because it's about clearing people out of um, out of the out of the centre of London and other cities. Um, but no matter who you vote for, it's not going to make any difference to the program itself. Taking um, some experience from from Scotland, the the uh, housing situation in Glasgow has been a, a slow motion train wreck as well for many decades. Um, we had the, the development of Glasgow was extraordinarily dense um, uh, with housing densities in the Industrial Revolution. It was very rapid, and all the all the tenements went up in thirty or forty years. The the city grew enormously. Uh, when the First World War came along, such was the pressure; uh, it was driving rents up and. Um, wartime restrictions and all the rest of it. There was rent control placed on, which has got the same effect on, on a city as carpet bombing. It just takes a little longer. So by the time I was a small boy, uh, I remember Glasgow being a sea of rubble uh, as, as vast acreages of tenements were demolished. But what happened here was very poor quality housing, very overcrowded conditions, um, but communities which worked where every close was a little community unto its own right, and um, 
people were taken out of that and put in either high-rise developments or schemes on the periphery of the city with no facilities. And the, the experience of the people was never quite the same, um, despite the nominally better housing. Even that was quite poor in a lot of cases. Some of the high-rises in Glasgow were never occupied, such were the technical problems. Uh, they were built and then they sat there for a decade or so and then they were demolished. Um, and it's, it's been one where the interests of the individual people were never respected. And uh, the, the more recent aspects of this with the money interest and, and the, the fact that International finance is coming in and speculating on on homes in London uh, with essentially free money, so it's essentially unlimited, um, and it's made it's made it a city which is not accessible for the people who who live and work there. It's a it's a bizarre societal end result where. Um, People are being presumably estranged from their own their own city and forced to commute and forced to spend time on trains and tubes rather than actually living and working and having a life. It, it has a very profound effect. The last three years before before this one, we were working um, quite a large group that we put together. Because um, what we do, we, we're not really. We put together working groups for projects that we work on, and we bring in quantity surveyors, engineers, environmental engineers, architects, and so on and so forth. Um, and we put together reports, and in that report, we'll propose the architectural alternative to demolishing an estate. The one we were working on was St. Raphael's estate, which is up near Wembley. Um, and it was a state of about <clears throat> you know, two and a half thousand people. And we were successful in helping save it. Um, and we can do things like saying, our proposals are about one-eighth of the cost, the actual outlay that they are proposing with demolition and redevelopment. We don't just say don't demolish it, but we look at infill housing, we look at refurbishment, we look at how we can increase the housing capacity of it, but you keep the community together. Um, we can look at, we can produce analyses of what's going to happen to the people who are living there now, the existing community, um, and how they're going to be, have to be moved out and what's going to happen to them. And we can even produce environmental um, analyses of the carbon costs of demolition, disposing of waste, and all this sort of stuff. But one of the hardest things has been to do is to actually look at what you were talking about, about what it does to communities. That's a lot less unquantifiable. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the people who are promoting this, the councillors, the architects, the engineers, the developers, financiers, they've never lived on a council estate. Um, and council estates are communities which are usually at the very least, three generations of people who are living on the estate or around the estate. And they're very interdependent, those generations. Um, one of the blocks that we were, um, we were having a kind of a, a exhibition of some of our works, and uh, a woman came up who lived on this one block on the, on the, on the uh, St. Raphael's estate. And she told us about herself. And she told us about the block. And she said she's got the nickname Mother because she looks after so many people on the estate. Um, the single mothers, when they go out to work, she looks after their kids. Um, there's a very elderly, elderly lady in her 90s at the end of the, the block, and she looks after her. 
Um, there's disabled people. Her own, I think her own mother uh, was disabled. And there's a kind of a real interdependence in that community. You can go from the block to the whole estate. Um, and when you break up that community, and that always happens, it always happens. Those communities get broken up when an estate is demolished. All those support networks fall to pieces, um, and people die very, very quickly on it. Um, and I think, again, go back to the sort of the subject of uh, this kind of interview. Um, these policies are designed to destroy communities. Um, they're designed to do a lot of things. One of the things they're designed to do is to make enormous amounts of money. And uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the big misconceptions about social or council housing in this country is that it's being subsidized by the state. That's not the case at all. When it was built, loans were taken out effectively against the government. And the government has recouped those. The sort of large housing estates, the post-war housing estates were built in the 50s and 60s, and even up to the 70s, have recouped their costs a long time ago. And they are actually making money for the councils. Um, the councils who sort of say, we can't afford to refurbish them and stuff, they're simply lying to show that. What is being subsidized by the state is the new developments that are being built on their ruins. There is no, in my, in my opinion, from a lot of analysis of a number of years, there is really no, there's no public development project, particularly residential development in this country, which isn't designed to get public subsidies from the government. There is a huge range of policies in this government, in, in, this, in this country, which range from help to buy, um, to right to buy, obviously, um, to the kind of subsidies which come from the Mayor of London, the GLA, or other municipalities to subsidize the building of homes built on demolished council estates. These are the projects that are being subsidized by the government, by the public purse, not the existing social housing. Um, and a lot of the privately funded developments, I think, are actually undertaken, not merely for the profits they're going to make from selling extremely expensive houses or renting out extremely expensive houses, it's also to get their hands on the millions and millions or the billions of pounds of public money which is subsidizing these developments on the justification that we're in a housing crisis. All you have to say is, I'm addressing the housing crisis and huge amounts of money flow into these private developers. But when you come up with actual solutions to the housing crisis, which is about building homes which are outside of the market um, and cost very, very little, Nobody wants to know, and there's no substance. There's very little funding for that. We really have to understand housing policy, and this is a kind of an inversion. I think it's important to understand what's been going on in this country over the last since March 2020. The housing policy in this country um, is designed to create and to sustain the existence of a housing crisis. It's not there to address it because so much money is being made out of this housing crisis. But also, as you said. It's changing the makeup of how people live. It's changing the communities which constitute the UK, how people live together, um, how, what our cities are for, who lives in them, how they relate to each other as well. So it's not just an economic project or a finance program. It's also a political one as well and a social one. We've always tried to address housing policy through in its social, economic, environmental, and its political dimension. If you don't address it in that way, you're simply isolating one particular problem or one particular program from the totality.
in Glasgow in the in the seventies when the the tenements were being cleared and the and the big the high flats were being built. That was the the government um, selected solution at the time. Um, the if the, there's there's a there's a song that's people can find it'll be available we'll put it we'll, we'll find a youtube copy and we'll put it in the show notes to this um which relates to how it changed the, the life of the children because um the children used to play in the in the back courts of the tenements so they played in an area that was overlooked by the kitchen windows of every tenement flat and um when it when they got hungry they wouldn't they wouldn't go up something to eat they would shout up to their mothers the mothers at that point were in home in the home because they hadn't been forced out to work economically which is another story which is which is housing related to um and the mothers would put a sandwich in glasgow it's called a piece in a bag and throw it out the window down to save the kid stopping the game and he would he would have his he would have his his sandwiches piece down as he as he played football or what have you in the back courts, and there's a song about what happens if you try to do this in a in a set of high flats. It's called "You Can't Throw Pieces at a Twenty Story Flat," right? And it's it, it's the songs about all the things that will happen to the sandwich on the way down, and it will never reach the child below. And it's it's quite a it, it, it's a funny song, but it, it's quite poignant, and it shows it changes people's lives. Now. Your book's called The Road to Fascism. And I, one of the reasons it surprised me that you tackled this is a lot of the people who are in, interested in social housing, they tend to be on the political left, maybe where you are, maybe where you started. Um, and, and yet, Road to Fascism, this is read on of, of Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, where he warned about the the, the harmful consequences of the of an ever in uh, an ever um, encroaching ever enlarging role for government and for the state in everything that happens and, until eventually we're controlled we're serfs we're no longer free men in a free land um what was your book inspired by Hayek's in some way yeah um, the title certainly was, and one of my chapters um, is directly addressing his, his book, uh, which I found fascinating. Um, chapter 7, Fascism, Neoliberalism and the Left, which I talked specifically about um, Hayek's, Hayek's book and his, his analysis. Um, it is the, the title of the book, The Road to Fascism, is a definite quotation of Hayek's book, to Serfdom. And as I said in my preface, um, his warning about um, what happens when the rights of the individual are subsumed to um, a collective good which is decided by government and the state on the justification of that the state comes in to micromanage increasing aspects of our life um, having said that I'm not a Hayekian at all in fact when I read his book which I'd been meaning to read for many years. You know, sometimes these chances kind of come along and you think, now's the time to read it. Um, I, was, I was very disappointed with it. I was fascinated with it. Um, too many people in this country, and I think around the world, only read their side of things. You know, if you're a leftist, you read left stuff, you're the right, blah, 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 blah. I didn't agree with that at all. You should always read 
um, uh, the people who you don't agree with. Um, his book is not a book of uh, economic motivations, it's a manifesto. Um, it was written, it was published in 44, wasn't it, 1944. And in my reading of it, the reason it became kind of like a Bible, isn't it? It became a kind of the equivalent of Das Kapital for the, for the right. Is it, it answered the need of the movement in economics called, which is we call now neoliberalism. It came out of the late 60s, the early 70s. It um, <clears throat> came out of the sort of the Chicago School of Economics and went on to conquer the world. I refer to neoliberalism as the neoliberal revolution which happened on the back of um, the, un, the separation of the US dollar from the gold standard in 71, um, and eventually went on to conquer, take over um, the US, the UK, and pretty much every Western economy. Um, we shouldn't forget that neoliberalism was first trialed not in the US or the UK, not by Reagan or Thatcher, it was trialed by Pinochet in Chile and under the Argentinian junta, um, in other words, under not fascist, but certainly military dictatorship. Um, and it was done, it was funded on the back of corporations, global corporations who knew they could go in. And when the um, national resources and industries and services of those countries had been privatized, they could go in and jump, in, jump on it. Um, so I think Neoliberalism has got, well, first of all, that model of um, privatization um, is something that we're seeing under the, the kind of the COVID crisis as well. So I think it's got something to teach us there. Um, but I, I think this, this is the way in which I, I was able to use rehabilitate, if you like, or to reuse this term fascism. Um, over the previous two years, when I'd been writing about the coronavirus crisis, I'd always avoided using this term. It's a very difficult term to use. Um, it's usually, if you use it, it's usually as an insult, not really taken seriously as a, as a description of a contemporary form of politics. Um, it's used in the term neo-fascism to describe groups like uh, Ukraine, for instance, or it was before we suddenly became their best friends. Um, but it's not really used to describe what's going on in Western politics. If you call the US or something like that fascist, you get diminished or you get dismissed as someone who's not a very serious person. And I had resisted using it. But then I think when we got into um, last winter and you had these extraordinary levels of uh, state violence in places like Canada, France, Austria, Germany, Australia, and New Zealand, um, I was looking at that and thinking, if this isn't fascism, what is it? And Hayek's book, and for those who haven't read it, Hayek basically um, equates all forms of centralized um, economies, centralized governments who've got complete control over the economy, um, as a form of fascism. So in that way, he says that the, any form of socialism or communism is the same as fascism. Um, and he reduces the differences between it. Um, and I took up this term fascism because I was very concerned about the fact that a lot of people who were resisting coronavirus justified restrictions on our human rights, which in Austria got to the point where uh, I think they were about to say that uh, anyone who didn't get one of the vaccinations would be basically under house arrest. And if they resisted, if they actually came out of their homes, 
and they got arrested, they would get a fine. If they couldn't pay the fine, they would end up in jail. So we were definitely going down a kind of a generally going down a road of fascism. Um, and a lot of the people who've been resisting this come from the, if you like, the libertarian right. I really don't think those terms left and right really mean anything else anymore, but they were definitely from a libertarian position. Um, and to describe this enormous increase in the power, the reach of the state over Africa, people were describing this as a form of communism. And I think that is very, very, very wrong. Uh, what the, the governments, the G20, the G7, the WEF, the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and all the other global transnational organizations who are the, who are the architects and the implementers of this revolution that's going on. And I believe it's a revolution in capitalism. They're not communists. Um, they are, this, what, what I believe is happening now is after 40 years of neoliberalism, capitalism is undergoing a revolution into something which is far more authoritarian and is forming a new form of totalitarianism. So the term fascism, looking back on what happened in the 30s and how it was done, fascism arose from the failure of democratic states in Europe in the 20s and 30s, helped me to understand what was happening now. How fascism rises out of a crisis in finance, an economic crisis, and it's built on a crumbling or a failing democracy. And what we've got in the West, in the UK, but across the West, is we've got enormous financial crisis and we've got failing democracies. Fascism is a, a, still a very controversial term because it, it, it came also, it, it certainly came out of, of um, the crises uh, in, in leadership uh, in democracies, in the inability of, of some of the states, especially America, uh, to, to deal with the economic setbacks. Um, but it came out also of, the, of what was the term the progressive age, the idea that government can do more, the idea that government must be proactive, the idea that people can't be left alone, and that government's role is to manage more and more of their lives. And as you see through the COVID crisis, almost their every move or lack thereof. Um, so a lot of people view fascism as, the, as, a, as a right-wing thing. Others, I would tend to agree with them, point to the, the left-wing history of Mussolini and say, no, it's, it's come from the left. But the degree to which these things matter, or the way in which they really matter, is um, no longer as relevant, I would agree with that. I tried to um, write something on this. Actually, I'm just looking for when I wrote it. It was back in 2019, so just before COVID kicked off. So I did an article for the UK column um, entitled, Who Are You Calling a Fascist? Because there was a lot of, it was a very common slur word, fascist, Nazi, far right, was being used to silence people who objected to the, the current narrative, the current thing. If you were in any way uh, a dissident, you would be called these phrases. So I decided to look into them. And and to try and give it a fair hearing because you, know, you should you should be able to correctly identify what the thing you're imposing is. You should understand it and and try to listen to its best exponents. So this article was written around um, my review of an interview with Oswald Mosley, which was done in I think the early seventies. So he was a, he was an old man at this point, 
but he was still expected to get the call to save his country. Um, and he's still expecting to be proved right. And he was describing his, his worldview. And it, it was very interesting because he had uh, an expressed, and I think genuinely felt compassion for what you would term the in-group. There's always an in-group and an out-group. There was with COVID. The in-group was the compliant, the obedient. The out-group was the unvaccinated, the non-mask wearing, the awkward squad. Um, so there's a compassion for the in-group. There's a contempt for the out-group. And then the other thing that with Mosley and, and the fascism of the 30s that, I, that I've identified is you needed to have economic error, a failure of economic understanding. Because he viewed this as a competition. It was an either or. It was, it, it was a zero-sum game. It was what my chosen group gets, the other group is denied. It wasn't we can all trade and work to one another's hand and benefit everybody. That wasn't a concept that was viewed as being presumably naive. So it was an economic error or a technical error, if you will. So you've, you've, when you take that and apply it over what happened during COVID, you see this, yes, there's, a, there's, 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 an, there's an in-group, which is the compliant, the obedient. Um, uh, compliance is seen as righteousness. And there's a contempt, anger, bordering on um, rage for the out-group the out-group who viewed compliance as cowardice. Uh, the, the people that the UK column were championing, talking to during the entire crisis. Uh, but you've also got here, well, I mean, there was an economic error because there was an economic aspect of the lockdown, the shutdown. We can just keep printing money. We don't need to make real things. We can just borrow money because it's basically free and we can hand out this money to people uh, in lieu of actual work, of actual labour, of actual production. And don't worry about it, it'll be fine. Because uh, the state's that powerful. So there was economic error, but there was also technical error on what the medical situation was, or at least a failure in academia, a failure in, in the medical profession, a failure in the uh, media to question any of this, to actually look at the facts of what the disease was, what the risks were, who was being affected, who wasn't being affected, how it was transmitted. So you ended up with myths like the asymptomatic super spreader defining vast swathes of government policy, which, which curtailed people's lives to a, an unimaginable degree, all based on error. So error seemed to be at the heart of it again. So I, I think it's a I think it's a good term to use for what we've been through. I think it's an accurate term, even though it's a a, a somewhat slippery one. Um, do, do you do you um, do you explore any other aspects of of the fascism tag in your book? Is there any any specifics about the the comparison between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty one? And, and 
the historical fascism that you've that has struck you particularly strongly? Uh, I agree with what you said. Um, error, um, and certainly, you know, the decision predates any knowledge about um, this novel coronavirus. Um, the decision by the central banks of the world to start printing money from around about September 2019, um, which in my book, I argue, is actually the economic sort of determinant of lockdown. The economics of lockdown was to shut down the real economy. So this sort of something like 11 trillion US dollars, which was printed within about six months, couldn't flow into the real economy. Um, that's a kind of a complex argument. Maybe we can go in uh, later another time. Um, I start off with I start off with the the image of what the actual fasces is. The fasces was this bundle of sticks with an axe, in it, and that's where the term fascism comes from. It was adopted by from ancient Rome, and the fasces is a very interesting symbol. I think it tells us something about the nature of fascism. The sticks themselves, or the rods, they were borne by a magistrate in ancient Rome, um, and they symbolized they were around the axe. They symbolized that by joining into a unity, you could be stronger than you are independently. Um, so it's a model of the state, the state that unifies together makes people stronger. But the rods also had a practical function as well. They were used to inflict corporal punishment on members of the legions, which the, um, uh, which the, uh, the Fasces was born before. It was a symbol of the might of Rome, and the legion was there to impose it on other peoples. Um, but if they went too far, the axe came out and they were killed. And I think it's a very useful image, which I return to again and again, of what is at stake in the formation of the state. Whenever a state is formed, a political state is formed, it is done so on the condition that those who are, for, are formed by it or enter into it give up something of their autonomy. They agree to abide by the laws of the state. Um, and when the state then starts saying, well, on the justification of this commonality which binds us together and makes us stronger, we're going to do this, that, and the other. So I think the actual, I think fascism is something which is a, it's a threat which is contained within all state power and all state formation. And I think capitalism is bound together by these rods, and you might call them the rods of law, the rods of politics, the rods of governance, the rods of the culture, the kind of superstructure that constitutes our society and perhaps our civilization. And when the the, uh, the, the ribbon, if you like, binding them together begins to fall apart, then the axe comes out. And the axe attacks certain things. And, you know, what we've seen, which has got a history, to go back to your question, repeating historical fascism, is that since March 2020, and during that first uh, sort of two years, um, up until when restrictions were lifted in this March, um, our human rights were almost entirely erased. Our rights of association, the freedom of movement, our freedom of speech. Even since, well, not even since, because I, I would, I don't really like people talking about this as something that's happened. This is, this is ongoing. And the sort of legislation which is being proposed at the moment, and the type of programs which are being um, implemented by um, organizations which we've got no control over and which are completely unanswerable to us, like the WEF, um, like the G20, like the UN, um, are erasing our human rights as well. Um, so I think, obviously, what happened in the historical fascism in the 20s and 30s in Italy, in Germany, and across Europe eventually, is that 
human rights, the rights of the individual, the freedoms of the individual, were erased on this common good of the strength of the state. Um, one of the things I did is I went back to looking at, because um, it's so well documented, the biosecurity dimension of the regulations which were imposed under the Third Reich in the early 30s, so before the war, before 1939, when not only Jews, but also communists or socialists or anyone who opposed the state or was seen as a threat to the state had their rights removed. And I was very struck from the very beginning that um, when lockdown was imposed on us, what's called lockdown was imposed on us, anyone who questioned it, not those who simply broke lockdown regulations, but anyone who even questioned the justification for doing so, was identified as a threat, not to themselves and not to others, but to the security of the state. So right from the very beginning, we had, and this is this biosecurity dimension of, um, of fascism, that the human body is being controlled on behalf of the state. The state is actually making claims over the rights to care for, but also to punish, to quarantine, to imprison, to fine, as said, are the human bodies. Um, the, I guess maybe at the center of my book is this idea of biopower and biosecurity. Um, and biopower and biosecurity is how we change. We, the state makes claim to the biological life of its citizens outside of any structure of human rights or democracy or accountability. Um, and I think that's what's going on at the moment. That's why I think the two years of the lockdown were primarily a preparation for what is about to happen now when digital ID comes in, when central bank digital currency comes in, when we create a social credit system based on that in China, which links the internet of bodies to the internet of things, um, when we have a universal basic income for those who have been basically made unemployed by the state, um, when we've got this kind of managed decline of Western economies, all this is gonna to lead to a point where the state has got absolute control, that is surveillance monitoring, control and punishment over the citizens of those states because it has made claims to our biological existence. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the language which was coming out of justifications for this kind of complete erasure of, kind of Western democracy and the idea of human rights and the separation of powers between um, the legislature, the executive and the judiciary was that somehow we are by default a threat our fellow human beings, that our very existence is, is, in a sense, quite a religious idea. It's this idea that we're born into sin. Somehow, everyone, a child born, is somehow deficient in their biology. They are, by definition, a threat to their, their fellow human beings. And it's extraordinary how quickly we kind of accepted it. And on that justification, that somehow our biology is it's the duty and the right of the state to take possession of our biological being to, to um, improve it, to protect it, to make sure it doesn't infect anyone else. We've given up the very heart of what we are as human beings. And that's definitely one of the ways I've looked at the historical resonances between what happened in the 20s and 30s, when there was a real discourse of disease, of infection, as you said before, the kind of the in and the out people. You know, there were certain people who were considered part of the state, who had citizenship, and there were those who were outside it. And the discourse of what that threat was, was a discourse of disease, of infection. You know, Jews were represented as kind of rats or in vermin, or uh, um, there was a real biological dimension to that. 
And we saw that brought back very, very strongly. There's other ways that I've looked at it in the book, which maybe we can get on to. I think that's a, a really fantastic summary of the situation and what we've, what we've been through and are going through, and you're quite right on that too. Um, I, just before we go on to other things, so I'd like to um, go back to something you said about the, the nature of the people who resisted, the sort of the libertarian right uh, resisted this, which they did, and the, the, the dissidents and the um, conspiracy theorists and people who had not bought into the state narrative before Right, people who maybe looked at nine eleven and said, "I'm I'm I'm not buying the official line. I've seen evidence to suggest something else happening here. I think I'm being lied to." So the people who had made a psychological split with the state as a single source of truth, um, the people who made a, an, an intellectual split through libertarianism or 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 ideas such as that, they they've resisted now. There was absences, though, who didn't resist, right? And there were two, the two areas that you would expect to resist were largely posted missing. One was the left. The political left adopted this with gusto, for the most part. Um, I, I'm struggling to think of an exception. And the other one was the church. Now, the church should have been we're talking about something you, that you, you've, you've identified religious connotations. You've identified the state being a substitute for God and uh, that you have an original, an original sin that's, that you're, as a human being, you're a biohazard, you're a threat, and the state yep. will cleanse you of this via vaccination and make you good and true like your leader tells you to be. Right? So there's a religious aspect of this. And of course, the manipulation of the public was all based on fear. And what, at one point in one of my speeches, I, I, I've talked about this, and I counted the number of times in the King James Version of the Bible it says, fear not. I can't honestly remember the number. It's a very large number. The, the, the basic principle of Christianity, if it's talking about things which you have, to, you have to avoid, you have to drive out of your personality, it's pride and fear. Those are the two you've got to get rid of. So when the, the state came along and said, be afraid, and what you've got to be afraid of is death, one would have expected the churches to say, Jesus Christ has conquered death, we are not afraid. In Scotland, 12 churches did. 12 individual churches actually sued the government and, and actually won on the COVID uh, lockdown uh, uh, restrictions that had been placed upon them. But the vast majority, the vast, vast majority, closed the churches obediently, right? Nicola Sturgeon was apparently, Nicola Sturgeon, not Jesus Christ, was apparently the head of the church in Scotland because she said close, and they closed. They closed the doors, they turned people away. The dissident churches were meeting in secret as though they were in a communist country, as well as in communist China. Right? Their biggest risk was people um, informing on them. This happened in Ireland, in Ulster, where the churches who, who wouldn't stop worshipping God, some of the, the adherents, some of the members of that church, informed on the other members to the authorities. 
They're meeting. They're engaging in worship. They're not doing what they're told to do in COVID restriction time. So it, it was an astonishing observation to see the surrender of the vast majority of the churches and the surrender of the vast majority of the allegedly radical left did it was surrender if it wasn't just an adoption of what they always wanted, which was power, um, to this idea. Um, so, uh, did, I mean, did this surprise you? What, did, what, what's, uh, what aspects of this have you had particular chance to observe and, and what have you seen? I remember on the um, that first lockdown Christmas, um, I ignored it and went on holiday to a place that I won't say. <laughs> um, and I remember passing a church, and it was out in the, we call it the countryside. And um, they had a sign outside saying, um, we are holding services, but there won't be any singing. Because the government had announced that singing was an emission of breath at speed, and therefore could uh, kind of, you know, kill your fellow parishioners. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was more appalled and probably less surprised by the compliance not just the compliance, the full collaboration of the left, than I was by the church. I mean, in this country, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I can't remember his name, um, a disgraceful person, um, he gave an interview when the, the vaccination program, the injection program came around. And he very strongly, he said specifically, this is outside the framework of human rights. And he intimated, he kind of said it and then withdrew it at the same time, that not to get vaccinated was a sin. Um, to my mind, that's the way the church always works. Um, Giorgio Agamben, the Italian philosopher who I write a lot about, he's pointed out that the Pope, who has even more of a pull, a vastly greater pull than the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, you know, has completely embraced this. Uh, I think they've, they've got a new coin out now, haven't they? The kind of a kind of a religious symbol of it, someone actually getting injected and stuff. That's that hasn't surprised that surprised me less because the church has always, throughout history, always um, been on the side of power, state power, and has never hesitated to use um, all, the, all the power of the state to enforce its orthodoxies. But I was very struck that, um, and I think this goes also back to fascism as well, um, that we were going through, I thought COVID was a fundamentally religious moment, um, I think the willingness which people gave up questioning and followed orthodoxy was very, very religious. And that goes about to the left, because I think very much so in this country, the left is a kind of religious movement anyway. You know, more than, more than one Labour leader has said that the UK, the Labour Party owes more to Methodism than it does to um, Karl Marx or, you know, any kind of sort of socialist framework. And I believe them. Um, they are looking for an authority to, to obey. I was also struck that, um, you know, religion has always formed its, its fears and its powers around death, and the threat of death was completely exaggerated beyond any rational measure, um, not just in this, only in this country, but everywhere. And the, the, if you understand, if you think about the sort of measures, as they were called, which actually have zero medical basis, which were promoted to avoid or to put off this, 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 this threat of death, like washing your hands, 
like maintaining distance, like wearing a mask, like injecting yourself with sort of salvation and stuff. Um, the, um, if you think about those as the interdictions of a new religion, rather than as medical measures, they make a lot more sense. I think the, the, um, the fanaticism with which people obeyed those um, practices, those ritual practices, and they are completely ritual, um, and the fury which they, as you said, which they um, released on those who didn't follow them, to me, had a very, very religious dimension. You know, I think, I'm sure you had this as before, you know, in the early days walking down the street, people literally, you know, <laughs> they were almost making a cross in front of me, you know, as the devil because I wasn't wearing a mask or something like that. Um, this, it struck me as a very religious moment. Um, the left, I've written an entire chapter, and it kind of runs through the, my book about why, um, as, you, as you said, you would might expect the left to at least be critical of the government. This is, you know, with the government of Boris Johnson is a, you know, a very very right wing government. His his cabinet was made up of a bunch of crooks. Um, he himself is a crook and a known liar. Um, you think the left would question what he was saying? You also think the left would question what the pharmaceutical companies were saying. You think they would question what Bill Gates and the um, you know, the, the big tech companies were saying. Um, you think they question all of these people because these are traditionally their their enemies, aren't they? And that's what their role is: the left to hold to hold power to account. Why didn't they? Why did they not only not question it, but why did they collaborate fully with and actually became the champions? They became the cheerleaders of I call them the COVID faithful. Because it is a religious moment, they became champions of that. I think. I think certainly the left has a religious dimension to it. Um, it's very much about purity and obedience, and you know, this sort of divisiveness, divisiveness into believers and unbelievers. Um, I think also, certainly in this country, I can't really speak for other countries because I, I haven't lived there, but it seems to me very similar. But in this country, the left has been so infiltrated by um, identity politics. And also woke ideology, which I think is without a question a fascist ideology. Um, that when it had a chance to um, enact, well, it's had a chance, it's been doing it for years, but when it had a chance to really enact no platforming, censorship, um, sort of anathematization of anyone who disagrees with you, um, the whole left put on its kind of its, uh, its, uh, its hair shirt. Went out into the street, you know, waved its incense, and you know, it's a seem like out of an Ingmar Bergman film. Um, I think that's because the left in this country has absolutely nothing whatsoever socialist about it. It has no interest in the working class, except as describing them as um, racists and you know, getting rid of them. Um, it's a woke movement, it's been completely colonized by woke ideology, and the ideo ideology of woke, which is a fascist ideology. Is now the official ideology of this country. Its, its unexamined orthodoxies are now part of the obligations of running a business. They are being written into our laws, have been written into our laws. They have completely colonized our parliament, our universities, our culture industries, our education industries. I think there is a terrifying and very overtly fascist ideology. We have to remember that I think after all the many, many years of, uh, kind of Hollywood cinema, when we think of fascism, we think of um, jackbooted Nazis sort of marching across the Nuremberg, you know, in the Nuremberg rallies. That's not what it was. Fascism was a movement of the young, 
and it was a movement which was of salvation. It had this heroic figure, whether it was Mussolini or Hitler, who exerted a religious power over his audience. Um, the figure of the Führer, or, the, or, the, or Mussolini's Il Duce, combined both an, a military authority, and obedience to that authority, with a kind of a messianic religious power as well. We don't have that figure now. That's something which is very different to historical fascism. We don't have these kind of heroic figures up there. But we have transnational organizations, which are technocracies, international technocracies, which are quite openly against any notion of democracy or human rights or their accountability to us. The new world order based on a single global government. And yeah, people have just signed up to this. This is exactly what um, I concluded watching Scottish politics. The SNP are very much of the left. Um, they're, the Green Party is even further to the left. Uh, the SNP made a strategic decision in 1979 that they would never be flanked on the left by the Labour Party. So they positioned themselves to the left of the Labour Party and um, made sure they couldn't be criticised on that front. What did they become? Um, what I concluded was it was it was fascism in internationalized form. It was a strange form of fascism because one of the things that they wish to destroy is the very idea of the nation, because it has to be global government. The ideas come from the UN, the ideas come from the World Bank, they come from many places, they don't come from Scotland. It's not, despite all the nationalistic flag waving that they utilize for power, it is in, its, in terms of its ideology, it's anti-national, it's against the nation. And so, yeah, fascism in internationalized form is, is what I concluded it was. And the uh, Russian uh, political philosopher, Alexander Dugin, uh, called it a liberal totalitarianism. It's, it's a totalitarianism that is, you, you, you're free to be liberal, however that's defined, and of course the Definitions constantly moving. Um, you're just not free to be illiberal. You're not free to dissent. Um, and then on top of that, you've got this when you talk the woke ideology, which comes from critical theory, it comes from neo Marxism, it comes from lots of things which are are left in in their in their origins, absolutely, and that's maybe why the left is disarmed and 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 so so eager to, uh, to comply, um, but the effects are correctly identified as, as, as fascist. For example, with critical race theory, they, it's sold that we must be sensitive to people about matters of race, but in practice, it's we must be hypersensitive about race in all aspects, so everything becomes about race. So although it's sold in the left, manner, the the effect it is 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 much more accurately described by fascism because everything becomes about race. And the nature of this ideology, the woke ideology, the 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 critical theory, the the neo Marxism, it is religious. You have a something that looks more and more like a religion. I was interested, as, as I look through your advertisement on your website for, for your book, which will 
review in full, and I hope to have you back on once we've done that to, to talk about the book in detail. But I did see that you uh, were quoting Hannah Arendt and Kant and others looking at Acts 5.29. Uh, the quote is, the saying that we should obey God rather than men, which is a quote from this scripture, means no more than that should the latter command something that is intrinsically evil, that is directly contrary to moral law, uh, they may not and should not be obeyed. And that little quote, that's, that is the ground on which the UK column has been standing. That's the ground on which the anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown, anti-coercion uh, by the state um, movement has been standing. Um, it's, it's contrary to the churches, because the churches are, are pushing an interpretation of Romans 13, which basically says, your rule is chosen by God and you've got to do what he says. And there's then a pause and they say, but of course we don't mean if it's Hitler. You know, sometimes you don't. Which is a clue that they're not interpreting scripture correctly. And I'm, I'll need to write about this because I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that Romans 13 is not talking about um, civil rules at all. And it's been completely misinterpreted for centuries to induce a compliance from Christians that they think is righteousness that is in fact cowardice. Just as we saw with the COVID lockdown that what we were told um, compliance, is, compliance is righteousness um, is, is a, is a, is, has been a lie for the last three years. So the, the religious aspects of it are fundamental. The substitution of a false god, essentially. Um, is, is that an area that you've, uh, that you've arrived at, that you're starting to look at these sorts, of, these sorts of issues? Is that an area that you arrive at in your book? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the quote that the you mentioned, Hannah Arendt, the German political theorist, um, and in the book, I quote um, Kant saying, "You know, if there's if there's a choice between uh, the, um, as he puts it, the laws of God and man-made laws, we should always go, and the man-made laws are wrong. We should always um, obey the rules of God, um, which is his way of sort of saying that simply because the law um, exists, every man, every individual, is his own legislator, and he can't avoid the responsibility of his own judgment by saying." I was just obeying orders. Aaron quoted and saying this in an interview she gave um, after she'd written her book about the trial of, um, of um, Adolf Eichmann, one of the great architects, one of the architects, the implementers of the final solution, the Jewish question. Um, in her book, um, I, um, what was it called? The Banality of Evil. Um, as you probably know, when Eichmann was on trial in, in, in Israel, um, his ultimate sort of defense was, as it is, of people who implement atrocities um, and genocide throughout history. I was just obeying orders. I was doing my job. The, the Führer was the law, and therefore I had no right to, obey it, uh, to disobey it. Not only that, but my virtue 
an individual comes from my strict obedience to the law. Um, <clears throat> and you know, when I read this, because I've been reading Aaron's books throughout this period, um, that really resonated with me. Um, that what we were going, going back to before, that people were not merely um, obeying grudgingly what they had been told. They had very actively decided to um, renounce, and very publicly renounce, everything that they ostensibly had believed before. I was very struck with my own friendship. You know, I, I think like most of us, I've lost a lot of friends over this. You know, people who used to be my closest friends, intelligent, smart people, kind of said to me, well, you know, I, 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 I decided to believe the pharmaceutical companies. I believe the press and the British press. You know, and I was sort of like, well, if you remember what happened in Iraq, yeah, um, and now you've decided to believe these people. And then they would come up with sort of anecdotes that, oh, someone that you know, someone who knows someone who knows someone who works at the NHS hard time. These sort of farcical, completely hollow justifications for their servile obedience to the law. Um, part of that comes from just sheer bloody cowardice. They're just too, uh, they were too worried about getting arrested um, or, or losing their jobs or so on and so forth, which is, you know, there's, there's, there's some, you know, there's some truth in that, but nobody wants to lose their job, blah, blah, blah. But they weren't simply enabling, you know, they weren't doing something small. They were giving their backing to, you know, people being forcibly injected. Um, they were being given their backing to the managed destruction of the UK economy and the global economy. They were giving their backing to, as they still are, to the outsourcing of the UK state to, you know, um, to private contractors, which has gone, which has expanded massively uh, under lockdown. Um, so they were enabling terrible, terrible things. And what we're realizing more and more now, although I doubt they, they would. Uh, it is that they enabled the injection of an experimental, very dangerous and increasingly fatal biotechnology into large quantities of large proportion of, of the people who live on this planet. Um, and if even half of the predictions are true that doctors are saying about what the consequences of this biotechnology is, I'm not talking about the, the huge rise in heart attacks and blood clotting, but the the kind of the destruction of the immune system of the people who've been injected with these mRNA things. They've been complicit in a form of genocide. That's how the UN describes it. Um, and they've done this by, they've done this not under, you know, complaint, under, under, they haven't been forced to do this. In general, yes, a few people were arrested by the police, and the people, those of us who went out onto the street were threatened and sometimes beaten up by the police. But the mass of people in this country and across the world, the Western world, did it not as willingly, but they did it enthusiastically. Um, they chose, you know, to use Kant's thing, they chose to obey man-made laws. They did what, they did what uh, Eichmann did. They made their obedience to the law a virtue in itself. Um, and again, to go back to what we were talking about before, that to me is a, um, uh, that's a, that's a hallmark of fascism. Um, I'm very interested in how power works, and as a sort of historian, there is never enough policemen, there are never enough civil servants, there are never enough corrupt government officials, there's never enough security services to keep a people um, in oppression unless they are willingly complicit in it. It simply isn't. Um, we're going to find out whether they can really do it soon when they go to these totally new level of um, totalitarian control, like 
digital IDs and CBDC. But under lockdown, it worked so successfully, and so much criminality was committed under the cloak of lockdown because people chose to believe the lies that they were told. The excuse being made by thousands and thousands of people, particularly those in public life, particularly the journalists who kind of were sort of calling for us to be attacked on the street, that our children should not get access to education, that we shouldn't have access to medical treatment, all these fascist demands, was that, oh, well, they didn't know at the time. That's a fundamental lie. I knew, you knew, and those of us who took even a small chance to you know, look at the, um, the records on human rights and so on of companies like Pfizer or AstraZeneca or Bill Gates or any of those people, you would have to be a complete idiot not to realize that these people are fundamentally untrustworthy. But the people who chose to do that, they didn't do it because they didn't know what was going on. They did it because they chose to obey. They chose to obey evil, if you want to put it in those terms. And I hope one day that we've got a chance to put them on trial. Yes, well, let's hope that day comes. The, the uh, idea that uh, there is no limit on the law and that the state can change it and morph it as they choose and the, uh, th those who serve the state must simply obey and their virtue, is, their virtue is, is tied up with how much they obey is something that we saw and we saw it in our faces in Britain. I, I, I was invited along to do a talk on uh, the green outside the Holyrood Parliament and the police had decided that this talk wasn't going to happen and I had an exchange with a police officer, two police officers, uh, it's on the UK column website. We've got a transcript as well. It's called Interview with a Stormtrooper because uh, that's what he looked like, all masked up. And at one point we got to the crux of the argument, which is can the people in Parliament take away any of my rights? Is there any limits on what they could do? And, and the police response was a, a somewhat bemused, no, no, they can do whatever they, whatever they choose to. Right? The, the idea that there are limits, the idea that, that there's, there's, a, there's a, a God we should obey rather than men, there's an idea that there's a moral, there's moral right and there's moral wrong, and that th this is not defined by parliament or by opinion or by force or by power or by majority vote or by anything else. It's an absolute. And each and every single human being has to decide for him and herself where they stand on this was a concept totally alien to the people I was talking to on that green. Uh, I'm very glad you mentioned um, Hannah Arendt's uh, Banality of Evil, uh, a phenomenal book, written in the 1960s, early 60s. And, yes, um, I think 62 or something. Yeah. This, this, yeah, despite the fact there's been um, another 60 years of, of scholarship and of information coming out about uh, about what happened uh, uh, during the Holocaust, I, I thought uh, that her book and her scholarship that underpins it stood up phenomenally well, um, uh, given how much she how much she didn't have access. For example, she didn't have access to any of the records behind the Iron Curtain; they just weren't available at that time. But despite all of this, um, it it was a it was a really a phenomenal piece of work, and I would encourage anyone who's not re read it. It's one of those books that you simply, you simply must read. Uh, the banality of evil, and it's a good place to stop this conversation. 
Simon, it's been a real pleasure. Sure. It's been lovely listening to you and, and hearing how you unwrap what we've been through and the underpinning ideas that are generating it and the risks that we face now and uh, in the immediate future. I hope we can do this again soon. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, David. It's been, I've really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I think it's important. Thank you for allowing me to come on here and talk a little bit about what I've been researching. And uh, hopefully we can come back and talk about my book in a bit more detail. In the, yeah. I'd love to do that. Uh, until then, Simon, thank you very much.